Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. There are many interesting things happening in and around the field of pathology, and on this podcast, I speak to the people who are doing those things. One of those people is my guest today, Michael Schubert. Michael is the editor of the Pathologist magazine and earned his PhD in biochemistry and molecular biology from Penn State University. Today on the show, we'll hear about Michael's educational background. We'll hear about the work he has done as a science consultant and writer, as well as his work at The Pathologist, and we'll hear about some of the science outreach he does in the UK. There are quite a few interesting stories in this one, and I hope you enjoy them. Now, here's Michael Schubert. So I wanted to start a little bit about your uh, educational background. I know you actually studied in Canada and here in the US, and you earned a PhD uh, in biochemistry and molecular biology from uh, was Penn State. Can you tell me what drew you to that field? At the time, I was very interested in cancer research. So I did some time in a, an experimental biology lab in Edmonton, where I went to university. Mm -hmm. And that was really fascinating. So I tried to find a place in grad school doing DNA repair, which didn't quite work out. And actually, um, I'm a bit ashamed to admit, I turned down a place at the University of Toronto in their Department of Pathology because I had applied to immunology and I had no idea at the time that basically everyone does the same thing in every department. <laughs> wow. That's so I settled on Penn State College of Medicine because they offered me a position in biochemistry and molecular biology, and they let me do a rotation around a bunch of labs to see what would most interest me. Okay. Did, did you have an idea of where you wanted to go? I mean, you mentioned the cancer research. Is that, is that where you wanted to continue? It's what I wanted to do when I started. I didn't have a great idea of what else might be out there, but I know I knew that I was interested in cancer research and I knew that I had enjoyed my time working in experimental oncology. Okay. And I noticed you had to do quite a bit of writing at that time too. I saw a few of your papers online. Was that something you enjoyed at the time? Yeah, I've always really enjoyed writing. I was helping with writing scientific articles and grants even while I was in university. And the writing was one aspect that I really enjoyed during my PhD, which is probably counter to everything you hear from other people. Right. Yeah. It, it's interesting. Like um, when I was in, in college and considering what I wanted to do, you know, molecular biology and biochemistry, those are the things at the time before I discovered pathology, that's, that's what I was aiming at too. So this is, this is kind of interesting that you, uh, you followed sort of that same uh, path. I know at, at the same time, you uh, started work, doing work as a science consultant and a writer for various like comic books and things like that. How did you, how did you get into that? Um, the science consultant thing was kind of fun, actually. I was, I've always been into comics because I think it's a great way of, I guess, communicating any kind of story, however, however simple or sophisticated. It really makes you focus on what words you're using because you have so few words and it really helps to tell a story with visuals. So I've always found that really interesting as a medium for any kind of message. I don't think it's limited to, well, it's not limited to fiction. It's not limited to stuff for kids. I think it's got a lot of scope. So because I was interested in comics, I had friends who were interested in comics. And one of them one day told me that Marvel Comics had put out a tweet looking for, quote unquote, a scientist who knows about vampires. 
I, I knew nothing about vampires, but I thought I can do that. So I, I, I sent them a message back. Okay. And then how did, how did the process of you being, being selected to do that, how did that go? Do you know, I have no idea. They actually got back to me and they said, uh, we, do, we don't actually need the vampires anymore, luckily, but would you okay. be able to talk to us about some other stuff? And I went, absolutely. So what I had um, started doing for fun is I had a blog where people could send me science questions. And the questions were all things like, hey, I'm writing a story about this. How would it work? Or, hey, I saw this in the latest Avengers movie. Could it really happen? Things like that. So I'd started to put together a, a collection of realistic comic book science and medicine or how you could kind of make it sound plausible. And Marvel okay. really liked that. So they asked me if I'd come film a few videos for them, if I'd give them some some little bits of science writing. Yeah, I think I saw one of those videos. You were talking about uh, Captain America. That's entirely possible. I filmed quite a few of them. And they were a lot of them were intended to go in an augmented reality app that Marvel used to have, where you would scan a comic book panel and it would pop up with facts or a little video to give you kind of a more in-depth experience. And I don't think they have the app anymore, but I think you can probably find the videos on YouTube and things like that. Okay. Okay. So I wonder, was part of the reason you wanted to do this just to, I mean, obviously the interest in comic books, um, but also to keep the science accurate. Is that, is that part of it? Yes. I think I have a little bit of the thing like like any subject matter expert, I try very hard to sort of suspend my brain when I'm enjoying media, but I do get a little uh -huh. bit of a thing where I'm just going, no, no, that 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 couldn't happen, that wouldn't happen, no. So I kind of I wanted to contribute to that. Was there ever a time where you just flat out told them no, that that doesn't work? Oh, all the time. But the thing is, you tell them no, and they go, well, we've already written or or drawn or filmed it, so make it happen anyway. <laughs> Okay. Were there some projects that you worked on in, in that area that were particularly memorable or things you were really proud of? I mean, whether it was with Marvel or, or other, other comics? I'm pretty proud of having been able to work on as many different projects as I have. I'm pleased that I was able to inject some actual science. I know, for instance, Marvel asked me about a storyline they did where one of the Fantastic Four got cancer. So I was really pleased to be able to tell them how these things would really work and what effects that th they might be seeing from this cancer and why and what it could and couldn't actually do to his body. So I was very pleased with that because at the time I was still pretty into the realities of how cancer works. Uh -huh. I'm also pretty pleased that I was able to bring a few hints at reality into Things like Spider-Man and the X-Men, which are just completely implausible from start to finish. Okay. Can you give a couple examples of, of, of that? Well, I was able to explain things like why, for instance, the X-Gene wouldn't create you know, every single mutation in the X-Men because there were millions of different ones. And sort of able okay. to explain how one gene could manifest in multiple different ways rather than just one or another. And to come up with a kind of a genetic explanation as to why you could have a wide variation rather than a narrow one. Okay. So what, what sort of time period are we talking about here? Were you still uh, in, in school at the time while you were doing this or was this after? 
this was while I was in graduate school because I was lucky enough to be in graduate school in Pennsylvania, which was close enough to Marvel headquarters in New York that I could head down there. Technically, I'm still on the books for them, but they haven't called me in a little while now that I'm living in the UK. Okay, I see. How long have you been in the UK then? Uh, I moved to the UK in October 2014, and the reason I moved was to take the job on The Pathologist. Okay, let's start with that then, The Pathologist. So you were involved with the magazine from the very beginning, is that correct? Uh, not quite, but just about. I joined the company as the first issue was coming out, so I had nothing to do with the first issue. Um, but okay. I've been involved on every issue since then. Do you know then what was sort of the idea behind starting that magazine? How, how did how did that come about? Well, there didn't seem to be anything in that area of pathology. So there are plenty of highly respected academic journals, peer-reviewed journals, and those are fantastic yes. and they serve a purpose. And there are some, what I guess I would call trade magazines, which are sort of largely driven by industry and contain a lot of material about specific products, specific companies, specific brands, and those have their place as well. But there wasn't really anything in between. There wasn't anything that would speak to the career concerns of pathologists and laboratory medicine professionals. There wasn't anything that would, you know, offer them sort of short news and in-depth news. And there wasn't really anything that I think took the same tone. We try to be really friendly with our design. We try to be really friendly with our tone of voice. Um, the idea being that it's something people want to read, not something they have to read for their work. And I don't okay. think there was anything else in that space at the time. So we were really excited to, to offer it. Okay. So you've got the writing background, sort of the creative writing well, with Marvel. You've got the research background with your, your graduate program. How was it that you got involved then with the, with the pathologist? When I started at Texera, I was actually working half on a magazine called The Ophthalmologist and half on The Pathologist. And I had a colleague who was doing the same. And I enjoyed both of those publications, but my real strengths lay in pathology and laboratory medicine. Uh, I did my PhD in biochemistry and molecular biology, but I did it at a medical school. So everything that we did had a medical bent to it and everything that we did had to do with the medical laboratory. So okay. I, I guess I just kind of felt very at home in pathology. So when it came time to expand, I moved over to the pathologist in full because that's what I really loved doing. That makes sense. And then when uh, we actually met in person last year at the ASCP <laughs> meeting, and uh, we were talking a little bit, and one of the things we talked about was and I know you've written about this in your latest editorial in The Pathologist, was that the third issue uh, that first year, the cover story was the last respite of the socially inept and how your whole sort of team was a little reluctant to use that title. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, of course, that's not how we perceive pathology in lab medicine, and that's not how anyone in the discipline would perceive it. But, right. Um, it was striking in that it was a quote from a department head, not just another physician, but another highly ranked physician was essentially referring to pathology and laboratory medicine as if it were 
unimportant or a last choice. And we thought that was really striking okay. and something that was worth highlighting. And we knew it was perhaps a risk using that title, but it's also something that calls attention to right. a really severe problem. Yeah, absolutely. The article in there with that title was, was written by you. What kind of feedback did you get from that? It's, it's been a lot of very good feedback. Okay. A lot of people have agreed with us. Um, some people have said, that's not the case where I am, uh -huh. which is true. There's you know, differences in pathology and in lab medicine around the world. So maybe not everyone is experiencing the same stereotypes. But as a whole, people seem to be coming to us saying, this is what people think of us. I participated in a discussion group at last year's Association of Pathology Chairs meeting and it was great. The meeting were kind enough to set up a space at the very last minute so that people could come in and have a conversation. And it was a conversation between medical students who were either considering pathology or not yet in pathology, but might be okay. and between residents and attendings. And all of the medical students said that they had had essentially the same reactions um, you know, oh, well, why do you want to be in the lab? You're so good with patients, or why would you waste your personality? So it's clearly still something that's a major problem. Yeah, absolutely. I know you mentioned it in the article, and I think it's still true. There's there's a shortage of pathologists, at least here in the U.S., and, and definitely in the forensic pathology. Yeah, and that's something we're hearing more and more, actually. Um, right. When the article first came out, that's over five years ago now, we right. had some people in the US get in touch and say that they did have a shortage and other people from the US say that they didn't. I haven't heard anyone in the US say they don't have a shortage in quite a long time now. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it's pretty obvious now, although that, that might be uh, beneficial for you know PAs like me. There, there's definitely gaps that we're able to fill, uh, but, but not, definitely not entirely. And I think I think I think at this point you guys are more vital than ever. And I actually I know I know you haven't asked about this, but uh, um, I was looking into essentially the equivalent to a pathologist's assistant here in the UK and elsewhere, and there doesn't really seem to be one. And I right. think that could be part of the reason that pathology departments are feeling such a pinch is because they don't have a professional in your capacity. Right, that's true. There is something I think similar in Australia, but they don't have the scope uh, that we do here in the U.S. Yeah, and I know that there are pathologist assistants in Canada, but I don't think there's anything like it in the U.K. and Europe. I haven't been able to find anything. Yeah, that's true. I, our organization has done a bit of research too, and, and yeah, same results. Okay, so one other thing about the uh, pathologist. There's an annual... Uh, the power list is what it's called. 100 people of, of influence in the field. How did that start? Um, that's actually something that started on our sister magazine, The Analytical Scientist, where they started to do a kind of a, a top 100 uh, who's who. It's not meant to be sort of the, the best 100 or the most productive 100, and it's certainly not meant to be the most popular 100. It's meant to be 100 of the most influential people. There's absolutely no way that we could claim they were the top or the most of anything, but sure. they're definitely among the most influential. So 
we took that idea from them because there's nothing again like that in the field of pathology and lab medicine. And we did a top sort of, I, I, I say top 100, but that's actually, I'm misspeaking. We did a 100 list. And then the next year, we tried to change up the format a little bit and we did a rising stars list. So people who are students in training or in the first five years of their career. Okay. I think that's what really kicked it off because the first list was great, but the second list was wildly popular. And I think that's because so many of these early career pathologists and lab medicine professionals have social media accounts. So I think they really pushed the list and really sent it into the general consciousness. And then okay. we did another 100. And this year, we're trying something new again. Right. Well, let's talk about the, the new format this year. It's quite a bit different. And I, and I like I like where you're going with it. Can you, can you talk about that? Sure. So this year, we've decided to go with four categories instead of one big list. And we've got a category for social media influencers. And this is because we've seen so many people in strong positions on previous power lists who have gotten there because of their skills with social media, either for teaching or for advocacy or for patient education. And that's definitely laudable, but we wanted to make sure that the whole list wasn't shifted too far in favor of people who have a strong social media presence. Okay. So we did a category exclusively for that. Okay. Then we've got a category for educators and mentors, because that's another really popular reason for nominating someone to the power list is because they've done a really good job of helping someone to further their career or a really good job as a teacher. And that could be of medical students, that could be of graduate students, that could be someone who is a department chair who mentors other department chairs. It doesn't have any bearing on the stage of your own career. But we thought they deserve their own category. Then we've got a category that's specifically reserved for non-pathologist laboratory medicine professionals, because we want to make sure that that category is getting all of the recognition it deserves. And I know that there are times when it can get lost as a category. People see pathology, they think, oh, MD pathologist, and then they forget to credit the rest of the lab for all of the work that they do. So we wanted to make sure there was a category that was explicitly for that to motivate people to recognize that category of lab professionals. And then our final category is, uh, is big breakthroughs, which is kind of, it's kind of the difference between an individual award and a lifetime achievement award. We want this to be for people who maybe aren't on the lifetime achievement award list yet, but have made a huge significant advance. So maybe someone has developed a new digital pathology technology that has changed the face of their lab system, or maybe someone has discovered a new disease entity, or maybe someone, even something like someone has started a, a brand new way of delivering education. Okay. So it's for any kind of trailblazer who's making a big step forward. Uh, that last one, so it seems like it would be more sort of technology-based? Or, or uh, it doesn't have to be technology based. It it is a category that lends itself well to technology, but it doesn't have to be. Uh, someone could develop a new method of processing tissue. Someone could develop a new stain. Like I say, they could develop a, a new way of delivering educational uh, products, which could be really valid now that people are often in their own homes rather than 
present in person. So it could be technology-based, but it certainly doesn't have to be. If someone discovers a new bacterium, they're equally eligible. That's great. I think it's an exciting change. And, uh, you know, obviously the the one that includes all lab personnel, that's, of course, interesting to me. So, yeah, I'm interested to see uh, how this how this turns out. Yeah, I hope we see a lot of nominations in that one, because it's a a new thing for us to set that category aside from all the others. And I'm excited about where it could go. Right, right. The last thing I wanted to talk about, you recently did something called I'm a Scientist, Get Me Out of Here. It just ended in March, didn't it? Yeah, that was from the 9th to 20th of March, because that's uh, British Science Week here in the UK. Okay. Can you tell me about that? What what was that and and how did you get involved? Sure. Um, Well, the name is based on a popular reality show. Um, sure. which I think is I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, which yes. I've never seen, so I can't comment on how closely they resemble each other, I'm afraid. But what it involves is uh, there are multiple zones. Some of them are themed zones, so they might be about particle physics or energy or antimicrobial resistance. And some of them are general zones uh, about all different kinds of science. And okay. each zone gets uh, six scientists and the scientists participate in uh, live chats with school classrooms. So teachers book chats, all the kids get on computers and participate in live text chats with scientists to ask them any questions they want. In addition to that, there are questions. So they can leave a question on the website anytime and they can leave it for everyone or they can direct it at one or more scientists and get an answer to that question if they don't have a chance to do it in the chat. Um, and then each day, the the kids can vote for one of the scientists, and they add up the votes each day, and whichever scientist gets the least amount of votes is quote-unquote evicted. That doesn't mean they stop participating, because of course the main purpose is for science communication, but it does mean they're no longer eligible to win the prize. And the prize is £500 to be used on a science outreach project of your choosing. Oh, wow. What age are these kids? Um, They're 8 to 18, but I worked in a primary school zone, so the kids that I was talking to would have been about 8 to 12. Okay. Sounds like that was was pretty fun. Um, It was a lot of fun. Yeah. There were some some clearly dominant topics in the chats. Oh, okay. Such as? Well, as you can imagine, for instance, all of the children had questions about coronavirus, and I've seen some creative spellings of coronavirus. Um, (laughs) Okay. Uh, aliens, dinosaurs, both very popular topics. Um, One of the scientists I worked with was a clinical scientist working on uh, cancer testing. So they had lots of questions for her about cancer testing as well. It's interesting. Uh, Although I guess, you know, aliens, dinosaurs, that's that's to be expected from that age group. Yeah, popular with the 8 to 12s. Okay. And then you actually, you won... Or you were picked by the by the kids for your category, is that right? That's right. I I still think all of the scientists who were in there were excellent, and I'm amazed that I won. But I'm also really pleased because I'm excited to do more science outreach. Yeah, no, that was great. Do you, do you do a lot of science outreach, like going to schools and speaking and things like that? I do as much as I can. I volunteer as a STEM ambassador here in the UK. We have a program for STEM ambassadors, okay. and. Uh, Anybody, uh, teachers, governors, um, 
activity club directors, anybody can request a science ambassador to help them with an activity, to come talk to their class, um, to judge science fair projects. They can request an ambassador for anything they need, and you can volunteer to do that. So I do go and talk to schools whenever I can. I talk to them about everything from ecology and adaptation to pathology and laboratory medicine. It right. depends on what they're interested in and what's relevant to their curriculum. Uh, I do online things. I do remote activities, like giving kids an idea of what different science careers could look like that not everyone, you know, not everyone makes explosions in a lab. Right. Um, I go to conventions every so often, so media conventions, comic cons and uh, film and television conventions, and I give talks about realistic science and medicine in those media. Oh, really? So I try to do as much science outreach as I can because I think it's a lot of fun, and I also think it's something we need more and more of. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, we need to get more kids interested in science to begin with. And then also, I think it's important to like you've been saying, make sure that the science that we do see in movies and TV and things is accurate, or at least as close to accurate as, as it can be. Absolutely. And I try to explain to kids that, you know, you don't have to have one specific skill. You can still be a scientist if you're not that great at maths. You can still be a scientist if you don't really like physics. Right. Kids have no idea sometimes of the scope of careers in science and medicine or of how accessible those careers are to them. So I really want them to know that. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's a great point. Michael, is there anything else that I haven't asked you that you would like to mention? Uh, no, I think this is great. Uh, thanks so much for letting me talk to you. It's, it's, it's really great to be able to help communicate about pathology and lab medicine and about science and medicine in general. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming on. Great big thank you to Michael Schubert. You can find Michael and The Pathologist Magazine on Twitter. I'll have links to those in the show notes. You can also subscribe to The Pathologist at thepathologist.com. Subscription is free. You can follow this show on Twitter at People of Path. And if you'd like to read the full show notes, go to the website. That's peopleofpathology.podbean.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the show. And if you like this episode, uh, leave me a rating and review and let me know what you think. I am a member and the CFO of the American Association of Pathologist Assistants. This show does not necessarily represent the views of the AAPA and receives no financial support from the AAPA. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast. <laughs>